But we've been working our way through the book of 1 Corinthians. And again, today we'll find ourselves in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. One of the things that we've said each and every week is that Paul, who's writing this letter, is responding to questions from this church. And so as he's been traveling through, he's been dealing with different questions. He's come to the, the question regarding spiritual gifts. And uh, Paul is going to talk about spiritual gifts from chapters 12 all the way through chapter 14. We're in the middle of that this week in uh, chapter 13. Uh, as I shared last week, when we talk about spiritual gifts, there's probably something to offend just about everybody, and uh, we'll see how that goes as we travel through. And I'm probably a little bit more passionate about this subject because uh, I've been around the church for a long time, and I've seen, uh, from, I've seen abuses in both spectrums, and so hopefully we'll be able to add some balance to the, to the conversation. And so uh, the, for me, the big question each week and this week especially is, what do you leave in and what do you leave out? Well, last week, and so, I, so it's, it's, uh, it's sort of a wrestling that I go through each week and uh, certainly this week also. But uh, last week we began in our conversation of spiritual gifts and we said, well, what is a spiritual gift? And we referred to Paul's letter to the church in Rome and Paul said this there on your outline. Paul, Paul said that God has given each of us, and last week we underlined that word, each of us, the ability, underline the word ability, to do certain things well. A spiritual gift is a God-given ability to do something well. And when he says each one of us, God, if you're a believer here today, God has given you at least one spiritual gift. And so there's going to be something that you do very well at and other people aren't going to do so, so well at. This, and that's because of God's gift. Now, now Corinth, the church that we're looking at, was a church that was very much into using the spiritual gifts. And so when Paul begins this letter, he says something that I, I think that we need, to remember, we need to remember. But back in chapter 1, Paul said this there in your outline. Paul said, therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift. And then I want you to underline, as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. So spiritual gifts were given to the church. And they were given to be used until Jesus is revealed. We would say till Jesus comes back for us. So last week we were in chapter 12 where the conversation began. And in verse 1 of chapter 12, I'll just hop, skip, and jump as we travel through. Paul begins by saying, now concerning spiritual gifts. And uh, he is going to give some instruction. He's going to give some explanation. And we looked at that last week. And uh, again, everything that we talk about is going to be within the context of what goes on within the church service. Then if you go down to verse 4, he says, now there are varieties in the plural of gifts, and that's in the plural, but the same spirit. And one of the things that we talked about last week was that God gives gifts and uh, the way, because it says varieties of gifts, and that both of those are in the plural, that Although two people might have the same gift, it's going to be slightly different in each person. So the way that God works it out in one person might not be the way that he works it out in in another person. So the idea is you never want to copy somebody else's giftedness because that's not what God wants to do in your life. Then you go down to verse 7, and from last week we said, but to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit. And then if you weren't here last week, you want to underline for the common good, for the common good. So each one of us is given a gift, and that's for the manifestation of of God's Spirit, and it's always for the common good. So that means it's not something that's uh, given to us for us to secretly enjoy, it's for the common good, and that'll be important for our study today. Then if you go to the end of the chapter, all the way down to, say, verse 31, 
And in verse 31, he says, but earnestly desire greater gifts, and I show you a still, uh, still more excellent way. So Paul's going to say, keep exercising the gifts, but I want to teach you something, and uh, I want to teach you about the more excellent way. Now here in, in the church world, typically there are two polarizations. On the one side, part of the church would say, we don't believe in, in the spiritual gifts that those are for, for today, and, uh, and that we would not be part of that, that, that particular belief system. Others would say we believe in them, and the way that they practice them can be a little bit scary. It's, 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 uh, it's mayhem, and we would not be part of that particular line of thinking either. So um, when Paul says, desire the greater gifts, and he says, but I want to show you a more excellent way, what we're going to find today is that excellent way is love, and that's what chapter 13 is going to be all about. Some will say we don't have the gifts of the Spirit but we have love, and isn't love more important? And they'll certainly point to this chapter. Well, that would be comparing apples to oranges because the, the two are very, very different. Spiritual gifts are given as a manifestation of God's spirit, and uh, your spiritual gift will reveal your part in the body of Christ. And love is a way, is the way that the spiritual gifts are used. Love is not a spiritual gift. So God gives spiritual gifts and the way that we use those in love. So it's not going to be one or the other. So, so love is the motivation for the gifts. If, if God has given me a, a giftedness in teaching, uh, I, I do this because God's given me a love for his people and uh, hopefully uh, that it's for the common good. So it's something that helps all of us. So that's the way that it works. Now in English... One of the challenges that we have is that we have the word love, and we use the word love to describe a wide range of emotions. So we'll say, I, I love my wife, I love my job, and I love Thai food. And for us, it's, it's all the same. And, and I do love Thai food almost as much as I love sushi, but that's a conversation for another day. But the, in, in the Greek language, they had a number of words for love, but that, that all translate into English as, as love. For instance, one of the words that we're familiar with is the word phileo, which is, means brotherly love. Thus, we have the city Philadelphia, which just means city of brotherly love. We're all familiar with that. They had another word called storge, and that was the love that you would have with your family members, you know, your brother, your sister, your, your aunts, your uncles, that sort of thing. Then there's eros, and we're all familiar with that. That's that erotic, sexual type, type of love. But then there's this other word, and it's called agape, and, and it was unique. And that's the love that we're going to be talking about today in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. So I'm going to pick it up in verse 1, and in verse 1 it's going to say, Paul says, in the middle of this conversation about gifts, he says, but if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, and I want you to underline that word love, he says, I become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. So uh, Paul, as he begins this conversation, now what, what I've done here to bring some clarity is I've taken verse 1, and I've put it on your outline, but I've put it there from the old King James Version. Now, the King James Version is a translation that was translated in the 1600s, and I'll, and I'll show you how this works out. Paul would write there in, uh, from the King James Version, and he, he would say, though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not charity. Well, uh, in most of your Bibles, it will say love. In the old King James, it would say charity. And that Greek word there is the word agape. Does everybody see that? Now, that's important because, you see, 400 years ago, 
when they came to this particular word agape, it was very common for them to translate it into English as the word charity. And the reason that they would do that is because that the word charity 400 years ago best described agape because 400 years ago, the word charity meant this deep, committed, sacrificial love. Where somebody say, I, I give so much because, because I love so much. And so they translated that particular word, agape, as, as charity. The problem with the English language is that over time, words, the meaning of words change. So now when we think about the word charity, what comes to mind for the most part is kind of this handout kind of thing. Well, that's not what it meant 400 years ago. So now they just use the word love. Uh, and, and so, but agape was this deep, committed, sacrificial love. So if, if um, here, uh, when, when uh, well, probably the best way to describe this deep, sacrificial love, I put a verse there in your outline that we're all familiar with, and uh, you, you, you know it. It says, for God so loved, everybody see that? And that word is agape. Is that on your outline? Yes. For God so loved, and that word is agape, the world that he gave his only begotten son. That word agape, again, because of his deep, committed, sacrificial love, which is what that word means, he gave, and what he gave was something very, very special. And you know how the, the rest of the verse, verse goes. The idea is that because he loved so much, he gave so much. Now, if God said he loved us and so he was dropping off a pizza, that word love would have been very, very different. He would have not used that word that re- represents a deep, deep, committed, sacrificial love. So verse 1, he says, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels but do not have love or agape, and every time you see the word love, it's going to be agape here in this, in this uh, chapter, he says, I become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Well, uh, when he says tongues, that's going to refer to a prayer language where the person using it is not going to understand the words that they're saying. We're going to talk about that next week in chapter 14, so you got to come back. But uh, next week we'll, we'll talk about that. But tongues of men and of angels. So there's going to be languages that can be known and languages that cannot be known. We'll talk about that next week. We're going to find in our next study that the gift of tongues was the dominant gift that was being exercised in the church services. And it was the big gift that everyone was into. So in chapter 14... Paul is going to give what we would call some correct, uh, corrective instruction or, or, or teaching. But they thought that if you use the gift of tongues, that that would mean that you are more spiritual than other people. So that was kind of like the, the apex of what they thought being spiritual was meant. Uh, but Paul says, but if it's not motivated by agape, that deep sacrificial love, and you're doing that, then as far as God's concerned, you're, you're just making noise. That, 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 that's all it is, just noise before God. To which the people would be shocked because they thought, as we'll see next week, that the gift of tongues meant that they were more spiritual. One of the points or themes through these three chapters that Paul is going to make is that spiritual gifts do not make you more spiritual. And we'll see that as we get into this next week. So this is a church that was focused on the gifts. And, and uh, when he says that that if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, he's talking about they're actually using the gift. It's an authentic gift, and they're using it. It's just that if it's without that agape, it's just noise. But they're still using the gift. Again, we'll see more of that next week. Uh, this was a church that somehow shifted its focus from the giver of the gifts to the gifts. 
It's kind of, kind of like this. This might not be the best illustration, but if you have kids and every day you come home from, from work and your kids are there at the door to greet you, you know, hi, dad, hi, mom, glad you're here, that sort of thing. And so you want to bless your kids. And so you go out and you buy them a video game. So uh, you buy them the video game because you want to bless them. A terrible illustration. Don't do that. But, but, if, but it's the only one I can think of. So you, you do that. And so the next day you come home and you're used to opening the door and they're like, hi, mom, hi, dad. But this time you notice that they're not. And so you walk in and you notice that instead of coming to greet you, they're over there playing with the gift. Does that make sense? And so the idea is now their focus has gone from the giver of the gift to the gift itself. And that's not how this is supposed to be lived out. Verse 2, he says, if I am, we spent more time on verse 1 than any of the rest. He says, if I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and have all knowledge, and if I have all faith, and I underline the word faith, so as to remove mountains but do not have agape, love, he says, I'm nothing. Uh, next week we're going to look at prophecy because that, that's going to be talked about in chapter 14. We talked about knowledge last week, and so I won't spend any time on that. But um, I want you to notice in verse 2, he says, if I have all faith so as to remove mountains. And uh, you notice that the, the power of faith, he, he equates that to moving mountains, the idea of, of being able to, to do the miraculous. But a part of being motivated by agape, that deep committed love for, we would say, God's people, it's, it, you know, it, you're nothing. And so the reason being is that the gifts of God are always given for the common good, the common good. They're never given for just, just me. And so when it comes to faith, one of the things that you'll find in the modern church is there's a lot of talk about faith. But remember, the gifts are given for the common good. And uh, people will talk about faith, and you have to use your faith so that you can have personal gain. You, know, you want faith for your business so that you can take care of you, and you can have all the things that you want, and you're able to do all the things that you want to do. And many, even within the church, will teach on faith as a way to have self-fulfillment. Well, um, and, and that will work. The, the problem with that is that's not agape love. And the reason being, for, for instance, um, did Jesus ever say, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must fulfill himself? What's it say? Deny, Deny himself. So, so when we use faith as a form of self-fulfillment, and, and it works, it's just not part of that agape. Remember that, that the gifts are always given for the common good. So the faith that God gives you is going to be for the common good if it's, if it's motivated by agape. Now, let me just also say this. On the other hand, uh, God loves to bless his people, which is why Abraham was the richest man on the planet during his, his time. And uh, King David and King Solomon seemed to do pretty good. And in Psalm 35, it says, that, blessed be the Lord who delights in the prosperity of his servant. And then in 2 Corinthians, when we get there, he's going to say, you'll be made rich in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. But the idea is the purpose of faith is for the common good. And as you do that, then God also, uh, we notice that he blesses. That's a big conversation for another day. We don't have time to talk about that. Do you find that interesting though? Good. Verse three, he says, now if I give all my possessions to feed the poor and if I surrender my body to be burned but do not have love, it profits me nothing. And uh, so one of the things that we, we notice is that you can actually give without love. And, uh, but, but we would say, but you can't love without giving. 
You know, there's just something about that agape love. And then he says, if I give up my body to be burned, if, if I lay down my life, rather publicly and dramatically, but it's, and, you know, everybody notices, but it's not motivated by love, there, there's, no credit, there's no credit for that. So Paul sees what's going on in this church, and he's seeing gifts being operated in, except they're apart from that agape love. So Paul says, so let me, let me define for you what agape love is and, and what it looks like. And so we're going to pick it up in verse 4, and he says, he says, love or agape is patient. You might want to underline that, it's patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. So the first thing that we notice is that agape, this agape love, is patient. It's patient. And uh, in, in the old English, if you have the old King James, it will say long-suffering. How many of your Bibles say long-suffering? So you're willing to go the distance further than, than uh, most people would think that you should. And then you, you see that love is kind, and uh, so it, 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 you know, it's, just, it, it's kind. And so how do you, you know, it is. And then it's not jealous. And uh, these are self-explanatory, so I'm not going to go into too much detail on each one, but jealous uh, is the fear of being replaced. And so it's, um, you know, your love is such a way, you're not really worried about that. And he says, and love does not brag and is not arrogant. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. I, I love that last word, and it's translated a number of different ways. In my translation, it says arrogant. And there in your outline, if, if you have the NIV, it's going to say proud. And uh, if you have the King James Version, it will say puffed up. And uh, if you have the, the message translation, it says doesn't have a swelled head. So say this person is not representing the Lord with this prideful, uh, boastful uh, way. The word there in the original language just means to inflate, blow up, blow out, to cause to swell, to, to swell up. And the idea is they, they are, are full of themselves. Now, the particular sin of pride that we're going to deal with in this, in this particular group is they were dealing with the sin of spiritual pride. They thought because they were exercising certain gifts that they were kind of more special than other believers, and so they were lording that over to other, uh, uh, lording it over other people. Well, verse five, he says, does not act unbecomingly. I like it how it says in my Bible: it does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own, is not provoked, and does not take into account a wrong suffered. Does not take into account a wrong suffered. Now, just very, very quickly, where in my translation it says, does not act unbecomingly. Uh, some of your translations will say it's not rude. And uh, here's how I want to define that for us today. Just write this down. Does not act unbecomingly just means that agape is not weird. <laughs> and, and so it, it, the idea is that the person who's operating in this agape love, they're going to be sensitive to how other people will be perceiving what they're doing. And, and uh, if you've ever been around somebody who really doesn't care what anybody thinks about what they're doing or what they're saying, and uh, somebody says, you know, I just say what comes to my mind, uh, that's, that's not agape love. And uh, no examples, move on. <laughs> so uh, I put verse 5 there on our outline from the NIV translation. I like how it says, it just says, it's not rude. It's not self-seeking. You know, it's more other-seeking. It's not easily angered, so it's not the person who's very hot-headed. And it keeps no records of wrongs. Go ahead and underline that, however your Bible says it. It's pretty straightforward stuff. I love when it says, keeps no records of wrongs. The idea is it's not keeping a list. 
Uh, some of us grew up in families, or maybe we live in a family right, right now, where we know who our family historian is. And uh, the reason that we know that is because anytime there's a problem, they bring up everything that's ever happened in the past as evidence. No hands waving, nothing like that, no fingers pointing. But here, here's what he's saying. Agape doesn't do that, doesn't do that. And, and uh, it doesn't mean that you don't confront, but you don't keep a list of things. And I grew up in a family that did that, and I had to unlearn that when we first got, first got married. So, uh, but that's not what agape does. Verse 6, he says, he says, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. So it's not excited about some of the things that we see going on in society and, and uh, in entertainment and things of that nature that, that are unrighteous, but rejoices with the truth. It's going to represent the Lord. Verse 7, I, I want you to underline all things every time we come to it. It says it bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Endures all things. Somebody will say, well, what about this person? I said, well, it's, it's, it's all things. It's all things. You know, you want to you go the distance until the Lord makes it clear that, that you're not to do that. Verse 8, he says, love never fails. And uh, you might want to underline that, love never fails. And uh, the reason, reason for that is that when we see this, and most of our Bibles say love never fails. Is that what your Bible says? And so in common culture, you'll hear this verse used and they will define it as love never fails. And they'll say something like, and this means that love will never let you down. Love will never let you down. That is a lie. <laughs> if, you, if you love somebody, uh, they love you. Somebody's going to get let down at some point. Love, love will let you down. What this means is that agape will never end. Go ahead and write that down. When it says fails, it means end. Some translations will translate this as love never comes to an end. Now that's important because in a few moments we're going to talk about some things that are going to end. But there is one thing that will never end. It's eternal and it's this agape love. This agape love. Pick it up again in verse 8. And he says, love never fails. But if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. And if there are tongues, they will cease. And if there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But, I want you to underline, when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. The partial will be done away. So, so here's what we find. When he says, you know, if there's prophecy, one day that's going to cease. If there's tongues, one day that's going to cease. One day, if there's knowledge, one day that's going to cease. So here, here's what this is saying. Write this down. Spiritual gifts are temporary, but will continue until the perfect comes. Will continue until the perfect comes. In verse 10, he just says, says but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. So, so as wonderful as the spiritual gifts are, there's going to come a day when they're, they're, going, to, to be, they're going to cease. And so when the perfect comes. So the big question is, who or what is the perfect? And uh, so uh, we would hold here at Calvary, and you want to write this down, that the perfect is Jesus. Write that down. The perfect is Jesus. I've put verse 12 on your outline. And uh, Paul's talking about now, 
versus when the perfect comes. And so here, here's what he says. This is what it looks like now, and here's how it's going to be when the perfect comes. He says, for now, and by now, we see in a mirror dimly. But then, when the perfect comes, we will see face to face. Now, I know in part, but then, that is when the perfect comes, I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. I will know just as I have been fully known. That'll be how, how far the knowledge will go. So, so when, when, when the perfect comes, two things are going to be very different. And you want to write this down. First of all, we're going to see face to face, face to face. And we'd say when Jesus comes back, we're going to see him face to face. But, but then we also notice that it says that then we will know fully just as I have also been fully known. So we will know fully. Go ahead and write that down. And again, that knowledge, if I can just say it one more time, will be to the extent we will have knowledge just as we have been fully known, fully known. So when I have full knowledge, we would say when Jesus comes back, tongues, which now might be an unknown language, will no longer be an unknown language because I will have full knowledge. Prophecy will not be revealing mysteries because there will be no mystery. And so that goes away when the perfect comes. Make sense so far? Now, why is that so important? If you come from a church background like I come from, we were taught growing up that the gifts of the Spirit were in operation until the New Testament was completed. And they held that the New Testament was the perfect. Well, um, or the perfect being the completed Bible. And this is a very, very prominent teaching uh, on one side of the church. And again, we wouldn't be on, on that side. So, but we notice that when the perfect comes, he says, we will see face to face, which would be one of the characteristics. And then he says, and when the perfect comes, then we will know fully. And that knowledge will be to the extent that we have been fully known, which is complete knowledge, complete knowledge. So here, um, even as, um, as uh, we have a completed Bible, there's still many things that, that we don't know. We, we don't know, which is why there are a number of churches up and down the street. We're in harmony, but we're all different in some ways. That makes sense? Now, now we know we're right, but... but the, the, <laughs> Just kidding. But, but, but the, the point is that we don't have full knowledge yet, and we have not seen face-to-face as, as we will. So when Paul writes this, and, and that, that part of the church that holds that, that these things were in operation until the Bible was completed, uh, that would not be the understanding of the church that Paul is writing to. Uh, they were not waiting for their first copy of the New Testament or a completed copy of the Bible. As a matter of fact, it would be another 1,300 plus years before anybody had a completed copy of the Bible. So how would they understand that when the perfect comes? Well, we begin with the verse today in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And I put that verse again on your outline. Paul begins this book, and I want you to notice what he says. Therefore, you... Do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. Does everybody see that? 
It doesn't say you have every spiritual gift until you get your first copy of the Bible. It says you, you have until you, you see the uh, revealing, or you wait, as you wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. So our position here at this church is that there are spiritual gifts. They are in operation until Jesus comes, the perfect comes. That make sense? Okay. Uh, verse 10, he says, but the, when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away with. And let me give you an example. When I was a child, verse 11, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason as a child. But when I became a man, I did away with childish things. This is such a great verse. By the way, this is a, a verse this, it, for you parents. This is your parenting verse. Uh, when I was a child, I thought like a child. I spoke as a child. I acted like a child. We sometimes are frustrated that our children cannot think like we do but they don't. And I'll never forget the time. As many of you know, I was raised in a, in a foster home from the time I was 13 on. I would, not, I would not today put up in my home, within my home, for the things that I did. When I showed up, I was one very troubled, troubled child. And, um, and so that foster family is still my family. And so I remember this one time, Cheryl was just going through this difficult time with our kids, you know, we had a bunch of little ones, still do. And uh, we were camping. Cheryl goes outside and calls uh, my foster mom, Marie. And she says, I'm going through this time. And, and she says, well, let me tell you how we dealt with Danny, which is what they called me. Now, you don't, but, but they, they called me Danny. And she said, one verse we had to come back to. He's a child. He thinks like a child. He acts like a child. And when he grows up, he'll be very, very different. So they gave a lot of patience to me as I worked through a lot of stuff. This is a wonderful parenting verse. Okay, well, enough about that. But um, when Paul says, you know, when, when I was a child, when I was a child, childish things are appropriate for children. They're appropriate for children. They're not bad. They're appropriate for children. Um, as gifts of the Spirit are appropriate for our present time. That is why we wait for Jesus to come back, uh, for him to be revealed. But there's going to come a time when the gifts of the Spirit, although they're appropriate now, they will not be appropriate then because the perfect will come, we'll have full knowledge, and we'll have uh, full understanding. So he's not saying here that spiritual gifts are childish. He's just using maturity as the example. And so as wonderful as spiritual gifts are in this present time, there's going to come a time when we are with him, when these things go away and these things would no longer be appropriate. They would no longer be appropriate because we'd have knowledge and there would be no mystery. So they will cease when the perfect comes. Does that, does that make sense? Okay. Uh, that wasn't a very strong yes, but uh, I'm, I'm going I'm to run with it. Verse 12, he says, For now we see in a mirror Dimly. And uh, when we say mirror, we think about the mirror that we have in our bathroom or hallway and that sort of thing. Well, 2,000 years ago, they didn't have mirrors like that. What they had is they would have brass and they would shine the brass as, as much as they could. And then you would look into the brass and then you, you would get a fairly good idea of what you looked like. But if you've ever looked into shiny metal and you can see your reflection, it's always a little bit distorted. Well, the mirror concept that we have wouldn't be invented until the 1200s. So when Paul says this, they'll understand completely that you, you do get a pretty good idea, but it's not going to be a complete idea of, of what it all looks like. So he says, for now we see in a mirror dimly, and that would be that shiny brass in that time, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then 
I will know fully just as I have been fully known. That will be the extent of, of the knowledge that we have when, when, uh, when the perfect comes. Verse 13, he says, But now faith, hope, love, and that's agape, abide these things, but the greatest of these is love or agape, agape. Now, Paul puts this chapter in the middle of chapters 12 and 14, where he speaks specifically of spiritual gifts. And he says, so, so if you're going to operate in the gifts, you have to know that apart from this agape love, it's just noise, there's no credit. And so that's the motivation for the, for the gifts. They, and we'll see that next week in chapter 14, they thought that if you were using spiritual gifts, that was the sign of spiritual maturity. Paul is making the point that giftedness and maturity aren't always equal. As a matter of fact, they're they're two very, very different things. Anyone can go and take a spiritual gifts test. How many of you have ever taken a spiritual gifts test? And, uh, you know, there's, there's some use for that. And the problem with that is if you have the gift of teaching, but you've never taught, it won't tell you that you have the gift of teaching. The, and so there, there's some weaknesses, but, but we can take those. But is there in the Bible a spiritual maturity test that we can take? Well, that spiritual maturity test is right here in this chapter. As a matter of fact, I put it in the box there on your, on your outline. And all you have to do is insert your name every place where the word agape love would be. So let's go ahead and take the test together. And uh, you write your name in the gap as I, as I read. So I would say it like this. Dan is patient. I have 11 kids, okay? And... You know, you only have so much. We look good on Facebook, but, uh, you know, I have my moments. I've always said that if, if, you, if, you, if you have issues with patience, uh, the way that God corrects that is he allows you to marry somebody. And if that doesn't work, he, he adds a couple of kids. And if that doesn't work, he adds more kids. So we've got some issues to work on. So uh, for me, it would be Dan is patient, and then you write your name is kind. And is not jealous. Um, I'd write, Dan does not brag and is not arrogant and does not act unbecomingly. That's, that's the test. Here we go. And then I would write, Dan, and you write your name, does not seek his or her own, is not provoked, does not take into an account, or does not take into account a wrong suffered does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Would you say that that's a good picture of Jesus? And for you and I, that is our spiritual maturity test. So how'd you do? I've got some work to do in my life. And uh, so, so that's that. Do you find that interesting? Yes. Now, next week, we're going to pick it up in chapter 14. We're going to drill down just a little bit more.